It's April 29th, 2020, and I'm talking today with Mark Pinner, Managing Director for Interrail in Beijing, about China risk. Mark advises international clients, including Chinese companies outbound and international UK and European companies inbound. Clients include Frontiers, General Mills, the owner of haagen Alibaba and Wiley. Prior to that, he worked in Lenovo's Beijing head office, and he's also advised several senior British Conservative members of Parliament, including Theresa May. Mark, the companies that I'm dealing with at the moment, they're very much focused on, you know, getting through the next few weeks and months, and that's completely understandable. But once we're through the immediacy of this crisis, people are going to start thinking about what comes next if they're not already. And I have a hypothesis that one of the big things that comes next is potentially a radical reshaping of the world's trading and political relationship with China. How are you seeing things? Well, I, I tend to agree, actually. I think there's a, you can see a trend in many mature markets around the world where they are looking both from a public level, but also from a policymaker level, a political policymaker level, where they are looking to question the, their role with China. And, and let me explain a bit more what I mean by this. So you can see in the States where there's the, let's just say China's reputation is, is close to an all time low. It's like the there's a, there's a big shift against China amongst both level, level, in many aspects of, of the US policymakers, public uh, business community. But it's also now happening across Europe. Uh, it's slow, but it's, it's, it's over a number of markets. So you can see this in, uh, in, in the UK, where you've got the, the rise of uh, uh, now what's the China Research Group within Parliament, which is attracting even what otherwise would be considered very mainstream conservative MPs. Um, you see calls from the calls from the from 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 the government. So Dominic Raab so asking to to sort of say that we we can't really return to to business as usual after the crisis with China, right? There's or people like William Hague right, asking uh, asking questions about China's. Uh, handling of the crisis. In France, you see Macron has just had a spat with the Chinese ambassador. So the French themselves, also there's a shift within French industry that's increasingly protectionist. That's been the case, but particularly protectionist vis-a-vis -vis China. They're talking about also sort of attracting, attracting French companies back on shore. You see this in, in Australia, where the, 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 uh, the prime minister has called for a uh, an international investigation into China. The, the Japanese are looking to to attract their companies back anywhere outside of China. Right? It's, there's, so this is even in Germany. The foreign minister is uh, is is sceptical about China's sort of statistics for coronavirus. And I think one of the immediate concerns that a lot of these politicians are having is right. It's looking at China's role, for China's actions from coronavirus, but in particular. The, the, the thoughtful assessment of this is how do they know this sort of thing won't happen again? There's already been one outbreak in, uh, from, the, from SARS back in Beijing. Now there's uh, another one that seems to have come from Wuhan. But the thoughtful, poli thoughtful uh, policymakers are asking whether this would happen again. Right? Also, they're asking questions about being dependent on one market. And public, the public opinion is also 
trying to understand how this crisis came about. And I think these pulls, particularly for an international investigation or, or into coronavirus, these sorts of things that the public and politicians are calling for are, are very embarrassing for China, right? They, 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 they won't want this at all. And this, and what will happen is that China will respond as it does, both from a public opinion and from government, and international companies and organizations in China will feel an impact from this. Yeah, and I, I also think that, you know, companies tend to be very pragmatic. Um, but I think if you take a, a medium to long term view of business prospects, then as a, as, a, as a business as well, you should be worried about this happening again. Because it's happened, let's say, twice in 20 years of globalization. So you could argue that the long term minded industrialist would also be potentially concerned. But potentially they're also thinking about, well, let's just get back to business as usual. China may have got us into this mess, but China can also help get us out of it. And also your long-term business, business, uh, business people will be thinking, hey, there's an absolutely enormous market and it's growing and it's still growing. It's one of the few places in the world that's still going to grow this year. So from a long-term perspective, there's good, there's very strong reason to, to engage and invest in China, right? In many ways. I mean, it's not, that's not something to be done flippantly. I, I, I would never suggest that. But there's good long-term prospects for China and there's good long-term prospects for businesses who, who might want to think about that as a market. Um, however, there is an increase in risk and reputational risk for investments in China, particularly ones that come from the West, uh, and maybe even for, for Chinese investments in the West as well. Yeah, so you gave a, a good overview of different countries' reactions to China. Um, you're a policy, right. so you're, you're, you're close to it. But my perception is that while Dominic Rabb may have said what he said, um, this isn't really on the agenda of most people in the UK. I'm not so sure about Europe. In the way that it seems to be a mainstream, like kitchen table issue in the US, and certainly in Australia um, as well. And I, I think that's potentially a reflection also of of the topics in boardrooms. So I'd imagine the boardroom, this is a standing item mm. on any major Australian company's, you know, um, um, decision-making tree. Um, I'm not so sure if it is in the UK yet. What's your feeling on that? I think it's not yet, but I think this is rising. So you, you can see this shift in, in, in different countries. So in Germany too, there's a, a rise in concerns uh, about China. You've seen in the UK, let's look back at even the Huawei uh, example, where the UK has allowed a certain amount of investment from, from, from Huawei and Chinese companies in UK's like 5G telecoms infrastructure. But while that has gone, that has gone ahead, but it's also been a kind of flashpoint, a bulb, a, a lightning rod for, for, for those who are concerned about China. And I think that will grow both in the public and amongst policymakers, regulators. So, and this has been happening in the US as well. And I suspect concerns like this, they are, I can see concerns like this rising in other countries in Europe. Not all, um, but in many. And it's not, it's not just, outside Europe, and as you rightly point out, 
Australia's there, but Japan too, and, and, many, mature, and many mature markets. So I, I think this is a growing issue, and coronavirus has just accelerated a trend that was already there. And for example, if you look at across the, the, the EU in its relations with China have been talking about reciprocity in terms of investment access um, for some time. So they've been, China has not opened its markets fully in the way that Western markets are almost fully open to, to foreign investments. And there's been a call from the EU in particular, the US uses similar language, for, to, for China to open up much more of its economy to, to Western businesses. Uh, so that's, that's already been there. And I think coronavirus is accelerating this trend and in particular is going to lead to a, uh, a, short, to a short term, let's just say six months to a year worth of much higher tensions with several right, mature markets around the world. And this could lead to a backlash against, against companies uh, and therefore investments from Western companies from within China. Right, so we're, we're going to see a, a growing hawkishness from the rest of the world towards China. It often happens that when an institution or a country is, uh, is in crisis, that they're the last ones to realise it. To what extent do you think the Chinese Communist Party sees what's happening and is, will be able to, to change tack and uh, potentially avoid this kind of scenario? I think they, I think they see some of this. So they're, they're not blind to, to shifts in international relations. Sometimes they, they just see things like we do through a different prism. So in China, in most countries, the foreign ministry is one of the top, let's say, three arms of government, right? You'll have the the finance ministry, or in Britain, it's the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. You've got the foreign ministry. Sometimes it's the, the uh, in the UK, we've got the, the Home Office. But in China, the, the foreign ministry comes relatively low, much lower down. It's like seven or eight in, in terms of the, the, the government hierarchy. So their ability to influence decision making isn't as strong as, as one might think. Uh, furthermore, China is a one-party state, right? You have the, the Communist Party at the top, and they see things through a slightly different prism than, than, than we would expect them to. So I think they're aware of the shift in relations, but they don't see things through the same prism of importance of issues. So whether or not they will react in the ways that we think they will is a different matter and to some extent that's it's, it's largely like many things in china is driven by domestic issues sure this uh, an international element can be embarrassing but from their point of view uh, an international element is important but from their point of view the embarrassment that this might cause domestically may outweigh uh, mm. a, a negativity from international relationships yeah there must be some kind of tipping point. So I know that Australia is leading a charge with regards to an investigation as to the source of the, the outbreak in Wuhan, and they don't right. seem to have, they don't seem to have corralled much international cooperate, you know, cooperation on that front as yet. And it, it seems that that's just rubbed China up the wrong way, and there, there's like a, a slagging match going on there. But it, there have been instances, albeit not many. But so there was that. Um, the Russians murdered that spy in like some <laughs> country market town in, in southern England a couple of years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and the international community did come mm. together 
and say, no, that's just way out of line. And, and Putin really lost that kind of, let's say, yep. PR uh, episode. Uh, now, Russia is a, is a flea on a rat's back economically compared to, to China. But do you, if the, if, the, if the free nations of the world were to come together and say, no, we really want to take this issue seriously and we want to see some kind of reform, how do you think the CCP would, would react to, the, to that? Uh, it's a very good question. And it's very hard to say what that would be. Look, it's one thing for China to say, oh, look, the Americans are having a go at us, right? It's quite another thing when like a dozen other countries join them and several other members of the, of the UN Security Council, for example. So if the UK and France uh, and especially, say, and also Germany were to join like Australian calls, it's much harder to, to ignore. I mean, China is, China is quite capable of retaliating against, the, against individual companies from countries concerned. They, they do this when they have spats within, within uh, international spats with countries. And sometimes it's just from Chinese consumers, right? It's not necessarily driven by the government, although sometimes it can be encouraged to by, from, from, because of like the way the aspects of media control, right? But the, there is, it is much harder to, it is much harder to cast that off as just being a, a US issue or countries that are being US lackeys if there's a, a several of them. What's more, it's also hard to react against individual countries when there are a lot of them. I mean, it's one thing to say, have a go at say Australian companies, right, or a backlash against them, or, it's, or occasionally it's to have a go against the US, although that's difficult because the US is so big. Um, but it's quite another thing when you've got, if you had the, the, the US, most of Europe, and you know other mature markets like Japan and Australia all saying the same thing. That, that's too much. And what's more, China does want investment from the right sort of investment, high-end investment from mature markets, right? They, they want to restart their economy. The, the economic damage from coronavirus in China is very substantial as well. So it, it, they, they, they can't really afford to, to have a go at the rest of the world. And what's more, if, lots of countries in this way were to have a go at, at the Chinese government, it would look very embarrassing for Xi himself. Well, right? because, carry on. because the more you, like, like Xi Jinping has concentrated power in his office, right? Amongst, close to his control. But if that is seen to have gone wrong and it's irrevocably gone wrong, what becomes embarrassing, then it's very difficult to pass the blame on to, to, to others. So on the one hand, it strengthens his ability to, to get things done and the way he wants them to get them done, but also means he has to take responsibility more. And this is a danger of a, of a one-party state, right? In a democracy, we are able to renew the legitimacy in the government through the mechanism of elections. In a one-party state, they can't do it. You know, they, they don't have the disruption of, of elections, but they, there's no, there's no, there's no acceptable mechanism like this to do it. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things that occurred to me during this, you've seen China uh, do a couple of things um, after the outbreak went went worldwide. I mean, they're sitting on all these medical devices, and so they're, you know, they're they're selling them, and sometimes they're giving them away, and sometimes they're doing doing that in a kind of cringeworthy, ham-fisted way. Um, we can talk about that. But one of the things they haven't done, as far as I know, is, is apologize. 
and and I think that would probably go much further than anything else they could do. And I just I just wonder what your views are on the likelihood of them ever doing that. Uh, I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right that that if they were to come out and say, look, we're, essentially they said look, we're, we're sorry for 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 things getting out of hand, then I think it would go down incredibly well in the West. But I think it's very unlikely they would do that. Uh, on, on one hand, on one level, it's a cultural issue. So it's harder for people in China to apologize straight out than in say, in say the UK, where we say sorry with multiple meanings, right? It's relatively easy for us to do it. Well, even that said, the British government does not often apologize to say they got things wrong, right? Let's not, let's not get too arrogant about this. Um, but in China, it would also look weak. The government would look weak internally, right? And from their point of view, I don't think that they think they've done a bad job in the crackdown to control coronavirus after its initial breakout. Sure, I think they recognize that they didn't, they didn't act fast enough and that's caused them and perhaps the rest of the world a lot of grief. But I think they think, and I think they've got some reason, good reason to think that their crackdown afterwards was, was pretty exemplary. And I think this shows us two angles, elements of the, of the China's one party state and, and the system and, and the, communist, the communist party government. They were slow to reach a decision early on. They had to report back to the center where, because the Wuhan government, uh, the Wuhan mayor said this explicitly, they had to report back to the center and they couldn't make major decisions and political decisions without aligning with them. And that is, that's got quite a lot to do with the failure to respond. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. But then afterwards, once the centre decides what decided what to do, they, they, they focused in, then the, the country sort of cracked into gear, like the, the Communist Party with its all its, its arms, even at very local levels, encouraged, cajoled and required the, the people to, to follow this, this lockdown. And that appears to have worked faster and in some ways better than it is doing in much of much of the West. And honestly, I'm not terribly surprised. There's a one-party state are good at these sorts of things. So I think their crackdown is, I think that the, the, the China's reaction to this, both in its bad side and in its good side, are characteristic of, of its, of its one-party state and some of the differences with, between them and, say, uh, a Western democracy. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because obviously most people in the, in the West would look at it completely differently and think, well, it's not... This isn't a struct. It wasn't a structural issue. It was uh, a fact that there's no freedom of speech, and you know it's like uh, s accidentally setting fire to your own house and not doing anything about it until all your neighbours' houses are burning down. But you're okay because you've got this amazing sprinkler system, and uh, you know. But it's but it's but it's worse than that because your sprinkler system is predicated on um, the fact that you're a surveillance state. And so, you know, there's the, there's the moral issue. So, you know, the the rest of the world can't can't rely on on that. They need to have the early warning mechanism. Right. And and there is there is a there is a a, a very reasonable question from the West about to, to to be reassured that this won't happen again. But just to sort of counter this from from what China would say, right? So you talk about the the uh, the surveillance states being uh, being a negative here, but they would say well, uh, hold on a minute, but our, our high-end IT systems 
are apps that we put on people's phones. These have enabled us to, to help manage the, the, the control of the virus afterwards. So they see sometimes this, this is a positive, and it's not just China who's got this kind of an app. You look at Singapore, they've got a similar one. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a, that we're looking at like a voluntary app like this that would, would, we're, we're looking at having in the UK as well. So, so China would say that to some, to some of this, it's, they would call that part of, partly, a, they would call that a strength as well. So it, it's, it's, again, it's not quite as simple as we would like to think. Um, yeah. And so what are the, I mean, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of rhetoric, but what are the, what are the world's real options with regards to, let's say, economic sanctions, soft or, you know, consumer boycott led? Um, given that China is so embedded within the global trade system, it's got to be like more than a tenth of global trade. And, um, are, are there, but, it, but at the same time, China isn't Asia. You know, and there are many low-cost places no, around no. the world. To what extent would this be saber rattling, and to what extent could economies and well, let's get micro companies realistically start to diversify their supply chains? Out right. Of well, I think there are two issues here. One is uh, like calls for consumer boycotts, and the second one is diversification of supply chains. Calls for a consumer boycott. One, I, I don't think it would be practical. Two, it would cause an enormous, if it was anything to do, anything connected with government, right, it would cause an enormous political rift with China. And I think with, with good reason, right? Um, unless China starts to do the same thing. I mean, you, you could argue that it's a little bit of using China's own medicine like measures against it. But I think that would be pretty irresponsible for, for a government to suggest this sort of thing. Um, so I, I, doubt, I doubt that this would happen at least within within from European governments. Now, in terms of diversification of supply chain, that's been talked about for some time and coronavirus has just hit this hit this home. Um, furthermore, companies have been moving their a lot of their production, low-end production capacity out of China. And what's more, China doesn't always want a lot of low value production capacity either. Sure there's a move for them, they want to move it away from the their coastal provinces uh, which have been getting wealthier and, and where labor costs are rising, they want to shift that inland, but also it's been shifting anyway to places like Vietnam, Philippines, Bangladesh, um, some extent India. So there is a move within Western companies to do this anyway. And I think coronavirus will just, uh, will just hasten this. And, and I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad thing from a, from a CEO's point of view, from a leader as a, as a, you know, or, or from a board perspective, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. Uh, that, that could be dangerous. You know, even just looking at this from coronavirus, look, you have restrictions that are largely based on, the, on a country basis. So to have different jurisdictions, just from a health perspective, seems logical. Yeah, I mean, I realise you're, uh, you're, you're the, the China man, but do you have any views on which countries are obvious beneficiaries of that diversification yes so uh, again it's, it's some of the examples i just gave it's made so there is i think vietnam will get a big uh, boost in interest um probably doesn't really it will help them that they've had a, a relatively quick and fast and effective response to coronavirus as well um but just that that they are known for being one of the countries that the businesses are looking toward looking towards 
uh, as opposed to China. Uh, the Philippines, I suspect, will be another example. Uh, probably the lower end, uh, you'll have you'll have Bangladesh and other like it's like nascent emerging markets like that. Um, perhaps some African countries too. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, and uh, presumably. There are going to be some obvious sectors where this is going to happen pretty quickly, like medical devices, for example. Uh, yes, but there's also the, the whole world needs medical devices now. So I think that it, medical devices and particularly this like coronavirus stroke flu related, um, not to confuse the two, but the, 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 like the, 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 the devices that help manage them are similar. But I think those all countries around the world want to boost their production of of, of equipment to manage coronavirus. So I, I don't think that will be restricted just to going to other, other developing markets. But I, I think medical devices as a whole, yes, there will be a shift to other, other markets, but a lot of medical devices are quite high end. And there are plenty of, of US, European, Japanese medical devices companies. So uh, again, I, I think it will vary across the spectrum. Um, if you're thinking about clothing, I think that might be one area where it's sort of lower end. Um, other things that are high pollution, like cement manufacturing is another issue, which is produces a lot of pollution. China's not very, not very uh, keen to have this sort of high pollution, lowish value industry anyway. And other, other companies may be thinking, right, well, this is, this is a good time to, to diversify our sources. And um, thinking about this from the perspective of, so there are a lot of European, American, non-Chinese companies that want to access to the Chinese consumer, this enormous emerging middle class and luxury goods makers and so on. I guess there's always been uh, a bit of a tightrope to walk in terms of making sure that you're on message um, with the Chinese yes. consumer. But that's been... That's been heightened now, I'd imagine. It may become more so if the scenarios that we've discussed have unfolded. But to what extent can you as a consumer brand become like, you know, what's that God that faces in two direction, directions, Janus or something, and, you know, <laughs> say things that don't annoy the Chinese and, and also don't annoy the rest of the world when there are these tensions flaring up all over the place? I think it's becoming harder, right? I think from it's becoming, it's becoming harder to, to manage that. So Chinese consumers and are now careful to watch what Western companies, Western brands are saying in their home markets. But, and this, the reverse is also true, by the way. So uh, Chinese companies are increasingly can't get away with one message to Chinese consumers, another message, and expect that not to have an impact to their investments and their reputation in the West. So it, it, this, this thing works both ways. But uh, I think as well as the angle for consumers, which you rightly point out, and Chinese consumers are very fickle on when it comes to international issues and the reputation of, of international companies, sometimes not for exactly the same issues or the same level of importance of, of those in the West, but they are often very fickle. But there is also an issue with, the, with companies' reputations with government and policymakers, which are not quite the same thing. So I think the increased tensions that are likely to come from this crisis just reinforce the importance for Western companies investing in China 
to be careful about their corporate reputation and their reputation not only for their brands but also their reputation as companies in China and they ought to be particularly careful to be seen as good local stakeholders because you really don't want to be seen as a, a sore thumb that sticks out as a bad example of, of Western practice because when it comes to China thinking from a, if the government then look, wants to look at say response respond to international tensions against Western companies you want to be them to be thinking these lot are good guys they're not some nameless corporation or worse a bad one they want to be we've done a lot like you've done a lot you're committed to China you're trying to play things hard and whatever's happening at, in your home country is really not your responsibility so it just reinforces the importance of, of, of reputation and political risk. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I just keep thinking of that cringeworthy interview with the WHO guy. I don't know if you've seen that. And the, uh, yep. the interviewer asks him about Taiwan and he keeps mm -hmm. saying he's spoken about China and then he just terminates the interview. And it, it kind of just made me think that, that it suggests that as friendly as you want to be with China, you know, they, they're not going to take the view that a good friend tells the truth. There are some things that they just don't want you to talk about or to or they want things referred to in a certain way, which can be utterly incompatible with uh, the expectations and moral values of of other stakeholders. And so I just think, it, 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 you know, if I'm a consumer brand and consumer brands seem to be taking incredibly moralistic stances these days as part of their right like you know nike and and so on so i just wonder whether you know it's they're put in an invidious position whereby they're just gonna have to just be a lot quieter perhaps i think they just they, i think they have to be smarter right so there are there are a few issues that are, are very sensitive in china again it's both for consumers and for and for government uh and examples include like taiwan like you pointed out the who but also tibet or, or or xinjiang and it's like the reaction you get in china is a little bit like talking about something in a deeply politically incorrect way in in the west and i don't want to equate the two they're not exactly the same but just the kind of reaction that you get is similar and you can also oddly china chinese consumers tend to be less sensitive to what we consider to be like pretty uh, outrageous like or what we we come across as very politically incorrect in the west let's just to say that so you know you can go wrong both ways around like there are examples of chinese companies getting things wrong in the west and there are certainly examples of western companies getting it wrong in china but from in most instances it it's less important it's not as it's not as it's not so much of a critical issue as, as you think you just need to keep some of these issues in the back of your mind and not do anything really silly. So, I mean, if you're, for example, you make uh, T-shirts, right? This is, a, I think, a good example. And unless you print something with some kind of statement that makes a political statement or that, that can be construed in a, in, in, a, in a dangerous way, what's your problem? The problem is when people occasionally try to, to produce some kind of statement. Uh, on print something. But for most instances, imagine that you sell some edible product. I mean, it's it's not going to cause an issue or it's unlikely to but it, it, it takes some understanding amongst your marketing people that there are some issues that they need to be careful about or they need to 
keep their Chinese just touch base with their, their, their China experts or their, 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 China, their China branch to see whether they're going to do anything silly. Because sometimes it can, sometimes it can do, and the other way around. Yeah, and I guess this only really applies to those like really conspicuous consumer brands. And it goes the same way. Like mm. a consumer boycott China's Chinese goods is it's unthinkable, mainly because they're they components to a large right. It's like what are you gonna boycott? Yeah. It's not like it's Yeah, what's <laughs> it's like it's so much. You know, a, a lot of the reason why costs of consumer goods have, have dropped so much in the last 20, 30 years is because of uh, economies of scale and production from China, right? It's so large that you can't not engage with it. And in fact, this is part of the point behind that, that, you're, that you're, let's just say the more thought through politicians who talk about China, they realize that you can't not engage with China. So even some, some politicians, will, you know, they, they have issues with China that, that you consider to be more hawkish, but Many of them will also many of them also understand you can't not engage with China because it's so large you you can't you can't try and just contain it or try and boycott it it really makes no sense and it's not it's it's in many ways it's not it's not fair on them either right it's not is it reasonable to ask for a consumer boycott I mean it's it's very confrontational so and it's very difficult because Chinese companies are so well so much ingrained in global supply chains and producing products that we use on an everyday basis. So I think it would be counterproductive on, on, on many levels. So I, don't, I think that would be unlikely to happen. In going, you, you mentioned like in terms of the Chinese apparatus that it's like a you know, many-headed hydra and presumably mm -hmm. that, that, that applies in terms of its, its corporate landscape as well. And so if I'm doing business with you know, a, a small business in, uh, in China, it's very different to doing business with something that's conspicuously state-owned, and that will have a different political risk profile as right. well. Right, right. Yeah, so, so to sort of elaborate on that, sort of, we think of the, the China being a communist party as being like a, a governing diktats come from the center and they're applied universally around the country. That really isn't the case. Uh, you know, you raised this multi-headed hydra. I think this, this, is a, this is a very apt analogy where you can have different arms of government doing different things. They may want to apply a, a regulation. They may, they may not. Regulations, in, sorry, laws in China are often very vaguely written, so drafted, so that they can be implemented in different ways in different places, or that they can be followed up with extra guidance. And what, will, what you will find is... The, 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 cent the, 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 the central government is like the big daddy of the multi-headed hydra, it's the big head, and different heads will be going in different directions. But when the big head really wants people to come together, it snaps at them all and then they fall into line for a while until they then veer off and do their own things. Um, looking at this from, uh, and that may, in that way, it, it, but looking at this from the angle of your different types of companies, I think is important. So you have, if you're working with a state-owned enterprise, for example, they are effectively an offshoot, a commercial offshoot of the government, and they will be very attuned, they are very attuned to the shifts in policy and shifts in, shifts in policy within, within the, the government and the party. And this makes a difference to China's, with China's international relations to other countries. So, uh, so if you're, for example, you might be a 
a, a, a French, you might be invested in a French company and, and France's relations with China might plummet. Chinese SOEs will be very attuned to that and be much less inclined to work with, with French, uh, French businesses. And I've seen that, seen that with, uh, with, with American companies where America's relations with China are the, one, is the, are the ones that have been most rocky over the last few years. But it can happen with other countries too. So, so SOEs at one level, and then you drop down to, to private companies. And private companies are really are just driven by the, the, the needs of private companies in, in, in the West. But they are still, they still will follow the interests of their consumers, right? And there will still be pressures from, from them. So they too, within China, amongst their employees, their consumers will be influenced by these shifts as well. But it comes from the top, the government. So if, you're, if you're, your business is directly impacted by shifts in regulation, or you're in, you're in danger of this, then you should be very careful about these kinds of shifts. If you work for an SOE, the effect is pretty, pretty close, but slightly less. But if your partners are with, with private companies, you are, you are more insulated, but you still shouldn't ignore them because you're still dependent on them and their actions, which are dependent on, cons on consumers as well. Yeah, right. So the closer to the bottom you get, the smaller scale you get, the more market-based it becomes. Right, exactly. And the less impacted you are by, by, by government policy trends. Ah, right. Well, there's a strategy in there, in that itself. So. But that, that's just from a reputational level, right? So the government is still the government. You still have to follow the law of the land, mm. right? Or you'll get into big trouble. So, so don't think you can march in to China and act in the same way and, and with the same business, exactly the same business strategy you do in the West because many companies have tried this and many have failed for, for mainly for those reasons. Sure, draw on your strengths as a business, but to, to don't expect the, the market to be the same and everyone to, to lap up the way that you do things in your home market. It's usually a recipe for failure. Do you think this episode impacts at all China's Belt and Road Initiative and the way they administer it? Yes, it will. So if the if China's rep international reputation becomes tarnished, so too will the reputation of its major projects. And, and the Belt and Road Initiative is probably the largest. So there will be more skepticism of China and China's role within the Belt and Road Initiative if their, if their international reputation is damaged and certainly the willingness of, of, of countries to cooperate with them over the Belt and Road Initiative may be damaged if depending, on, depending on, on, on what happens. And depends on which governments you're talking about as well. You know, if, you, if, the, if coronavirus doesn't impact your, your country, like, or the, the, the reputation, China's reputation concerning coronavirus doesn't Im impact your country very much, then it may not make so much of a difference when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative. And or you might be think that this is a good opportunity, this is a good means to attract more Chinese investment, which may be important because you're, having, you're, suffering, you're suffering economically. So I think it will vary, but in, in principle, I, I think if China's international reputation suffers, then so, so too will the reputation of the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, I suspect, Mark, we're going to probably need to talk again at some point in the coming months as this thing unfolds, but that's been a fascinating insight from your perspective in Beijing, although it doesn't look like you're in Beijing at the moment. No, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually in the UK, I'm in London, but I've been stuck away from my family who are indeed in Beijing. And uh, I'm itching to get back there as soon as I can. But alas, unfortunately, uh, uh, I was caught. Uh, actually, I, I was caught because uh, I, I was due to fly back in March 
but I realized that the, one of the last business, the last, in fact, the last business meeting I had before stopping them was uh, with someone who later came down with, uh, with pneumonia. So I then went into sort of like semi-quarantine here, and I certainly couldn't fly for the next 14 days, at which point China closed its borders to foreigners. So I've got caught on the wrong side of that. Oh dear, so when are you able to get back in? Uh, as soon as possible. Uh, it's, we're thinking that, uh, that China may loosen its restrictions, uh, particularly in Beijing, around the end of May, because at that point they're holding what's known as the two sessions, which is the two sessions of the Chinese, uh, the Chinese legislatures. Uh, so it's a major governmental event and restrictions of all kinds tighten up in Beijing in, the, in advance of this. So with a bit of luck, the, 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 the coronavirus situation here in the UK will, will get better over the next, uh, next month or so, and China will loosen its policies a little bit more after that. So hopefully by then. Oh, well, I'm really sorry to hear that, and I hope you get reunited as soon as, as, soon as possible. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.